You guys can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Uh, I'm Blake Jennings. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. I'll be with you guys the next four weeks. Uh, next week, I'm going to start a, a new series with you. It's going to be a three-week series called Cover to Cover, where I walk you through the whole Bible in three weeks. Uh, there will be handouts, so you'll want to bring something to write with. We will go into a great deal of depth. I'm really not kidding about the handouts. We will do that. Um, I thought I'd take this morning, this Sunday, to just go deep into Genesis 1, just the creation account, to prepare you for where we'll go over the next three Sundays. So you can go ahead and turn to Genesis 1. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, If you are just visiting Grace Bible Church, this is not a typical sermon here. This is going to be a little bit different than the norm. We're going to go into an incredible amount of depth. This is going to feel more like a lecture up at A&M than a typical sermon in a church. That's because this chapter is so deep and there's so much here that I can't do it justice in a 30-minute sermon. We really got to go into depth to unpack what's going on in this chapter and understand how it works. Now, don't feel like you need to to furiously take notes. I will post all of my personal notes on Facebook this afternoon. And then the sermon and PowerPoint will be posted, I think, on Tuesday. So you can get it all there. You can just follow along as we go through this morning. This is an incredibly challenging chapter of the Bible. It's made more challenging by the fact that when most of us read Genesis 1, we tend to miss the point. We tend to not grasp what the chapter is really about. It reminds me of the first time I took my son Luke to an Aggie football game. It is actually the only time I've taken him to a football game. He was about kindergarten age. He was a little bit too young. It did not go well. We, we walked for a long time, as you do, to get to Kyle Field and paid a lot of money and got, got into Kyle Field. And it turned out that all Luke wanted to do once we got to Kyle Field was ride that really long escalator up and down and up and down. That was far more interesting than the game because football is complicated for a kindergartner and it's far away. He couldn't really see it. And when the Aggies scored a touchdown and the cannon went off for the first time, he was done. That was it. We were out of there. He didn't want to get back on the escalator. He missed the big idea of why you go to a football game. He got caught up in the minor things. That's exactly what we do with Genesis 1. So many people read Genesis 1 and miss the big idea, what it's really about, and get caught up in the minor things. They get distracted by the the insignificant things in this chapter. So what are the minor things that people get distracted by? Well, primarily the question is how and when. How did God make the world and when did he make it? Lots of people, especially in a college town, they get preoccupied with those questions. They want to know, how do I fit Genesis 1 with science and particularly evolution? How old is the earth? Is it young? Is it old? They want to know those kind of things, and yet that's not really what the chapter is about. And that's really probably the most important thing I want to get across to you this morning, is that Genesis 1 is not primarily about how or when the world was made. Those weren't the questions they were asking. Those weren't the things that they needed to know. If you're going to understand Genesis 1, you have to read it through the eyes of an Israelite living 3,500 years ago. So let's think for a moment about what their experience would have been. What are the questions they would have been bringing to the text? So when you think about reading it like an Israelite 3,500 years ago, well, you don't know much about modern science at all. What you know is that life is hard, painful, 
and for most people, brief. You spent your whole life a slave in Egypt. And, and as a slave in Egypt, you were raised on Egyptian creation myths about the gods of Egypt and how they made the world. And it was bleak. The religion of Egypt worshipped many gods and they were all finite and they were all in one way or another immoral, really selfish, really, really petty. And they didn't care at all about humanity. You were just slave labor for that pantheon of gods. But then out of the wilderness comes this guy named Moses and he's proclaiming a better God. A God who's clearly powerful because he did the 10 plagues thing and he led you out of Egypt by parting the Red Sea. So you've seen some big stuff, but now you find yourself in the Sinai Peninsula and it's 110 degrees outside and there is no food and there is no water. And you want to know, can I trust this God? Is this God going to keep me alive in the wilderness? And when we get to Canaan, where where this God has supposedly promised me land, what are we going to do when we meet those people and those gods? Is this God better than those gods? And and when I sin, when I fail, is this God going to abandon me like the gods of Egypt would? Those are the questions going through the minds of the Israelites when they read this chapter of the Bible. They are not thinking about the mechanics of creation. They want to know, does this God of Moses have my back? Can I trust him? Can I depend upon him? So with that in mind, I want us to read Genesis 1. And we're going to read the whole chapter because that's how it was meant to be read, not a verse at a time. It's meant to be read as one thing. So we're going to read Genesis 1. And I want you to read it with fresh eyes, imagining that you are out in the Sinai Peninsula and it's 110 degrees and you're with your kids and there's no food and there's no water. And you are hearing for the first time about this God who's claimed to have your back. Okay, so let's jump in. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night and there was evening and there was morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, a third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created mankind in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth which has life I have given every green plant for food and it was so. God saw all that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So let's talk about what the Israelites would have noticed in this passage. There's three things that would have been clear, absolutely clear to the original audience. First, it would have been clear that this isn't a myth. They would read this as the words of God to Moses. They would read this as as a true account, not something simply made up by Moses or other people. They believed it to be real. So they knew this isn't a myth. Second, they knew it's apologetics. Apologetics means it's, it's ultimately an argument designed to prove that our God is better. When the Israelites would have heard this chapter for the first time, they would be hearing Moses proving that their God was better than the gods of Egypt. Now, how are they hearing that it's apologetics? Well, because Moses actually uses the same descriptions and same language that the Egyptian creation myths do. He just uses their words, their, their language, their metaphors, but he attributes them to the one true God. So I'll give you an example. Day two, same day two in the Egyptian creation myths. Same idea of, of waters above and waters below and sky, better translation of the word heavens there. Except in the Egyptian creation myths, all three were gods. And actually the sky god was stepping in between the water above God and water below God to keep them from having sex. That's how it worked in Egypt. So the Israelites hear the same metaphors, the same description, but they're attributed to an all-powerful God who creates out of speech. Okay, so they hear it as apologetic. So when they're, when they're reading or when they're listening to, to Genesis chapter 1, they're, they're not hearing a science textbook. They're, they're hearing a repudiation of the gods of Egypt. I, I like how Conrad Heyer puts it. Each day of creation is designed to dismiss an additional cluster of deities. So each day is smacking down an additional group of Egyptian gods. Third thing that would have been clear to the ancient Israelites as they heard this chapter is that it's poetry. 
They would have clearly seen this as poetry. If I say to you, roses are red, violets are blue, sugar is sweet, and so are you. How do you know that that's a poem? Because it has the marks of English poetry, rhythm and rhyme. Now, in Hebrew, you mark poetry not through rhythm and rhyme, but through repetition. And guess what you see a lot of in Genesis chapter 1? Repetition. Over and over again, you see the same phrases, same structures. God said, God said, God said, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning. It was good. It was good. It was good. So an Israelite would read Genesis 1 and hear poetry in their brain. This is a, God said, meant to be poetic to them. I love how Tim Keller puts it. To the original audience, this would have sounded like a song, not a textbook. They would hear it being sung, not lectured. Okay, so those things would be clear to the original audience. This chapter isn't a myth, but it's also not a science textbook. It's a poem that declares that our God is better than the gods of Egypt. So with those basic ideas in mind, let's go ahead and, and look at the details for a moment. So when we jump into Genesis 1, if you look just at verse 1 again, it begins with a summary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the phrase there, the heavens and the earth, it's one unit in Hebrew. It means the universe. So everything in this physical universe was created by God. That, that verb created, it's bara in Hebrew. It's only used of what God does. It means to create something entirely new, entirely fresh. So humans can make stuff, Satan can twist stuff, but only God can bara stuff. So we're told later in scripture that God created this universe out of nothing. We're told in Hebrews chapter 11, by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. There were no pre-existing materials in this universe. God simply brought the entire universe into existence out of nothing. But there are a couple deficiencies with this world that God has made. Look at verse 2. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So at this point, there are two problems with God's creation. It is formless, and it is void. Formless, picture like clay before you make anything out of it. It's just a lump, and, and you can't do anything with it. You can't hold liquid. You can't eat off it. It's, it's useless. That's the world. It's formless. It doesn't have any usefulness to God yet because it hasn't been ordered and arranged. So the world God has made is formless. That's problem number one. Problem number two, the world God has made is void, meaning it's empty. There's no life living here. Okay, so those two problems need to be solved, and that's ultimately what the rest of Genesis 1 is about. It's God fixing those two problems, bringing form and bringing inhabitants upon this planet. And it's actually really interesting when you look at how God does it. So verses 3 through verse 31, God is going to fix these two deficiencies by ordering and filling. Okay, ordering and filling the world he has made. And you can, you can actually divide it into a chart. There's all these beautiful parallelisms and repetitions through this account as God fixes these two deficiencies. Days one through three is all about God fixing the formlessness. He's bringing form to the world. Days four through six are all about God filling. He's fixing that void problem. He's bringing inhabitants. So let's jump into the particular days of creation. Day number one, God is going to bring the first form by bringing light. 
And he's going to separate light from darkness, differentiate, and he's going to give a, a realm to each of them. The, day, the light gets the day and the darkness gets the night. So God is ordering and arranging things. And I, I find it fascinating. When you look at day number one, you notice a few things about how God creates. It's really different than, than all the other ancient stories about creation. First, all God has to do is speak. Every one of these days, God speaks and it is. There are no tools There is no sweat. God simply speaks. So creation is a speech act of God. That's radically different than every other creation story where where creation comes as 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 a byproduct of either war or sex among the gods. No, and our God simply speaks and all matter and energy instantly obey. Instantly come. So it's, it's all about God's sovereignty, his incredible power. So that's the first thing to notice. Second thing to notice um, in day number one, when we think about the creation story, often what God is doing is ordering things rather than like creating things. A whole lot of the creation story is about God bringing order, separating, differentiating. That's a big part of, of Genesis 1. It's a big part of our God's heart. Our God loves order. He, he loves the beauty of symmetry. He loves bringing form to things. So often he's going to be separating rather than just creating. Third thing to notice here is that as soon as God creates something, he names it. Naming is a kingly act. When you name something, you're exercising authority over it. You're defining what it is. That gets really interesting in the next chapter when God lets someone else give out some names. Fourth thing to notice here is that every day God declares what he's made to be good. That's a moral judgment. What God is saying is what I have made is exactly what I intended. There are no mistakes here. There's no brokenness here. There's no evil. There's no sin. There's nothing wrong with creation in Genesis chapter 1. It is all good or very good. Okay, so let's, let's keep moving through these days. So day number two, God does the, the second ordering. So you can picture at the end of day number one, the, the world, it's just all water everywhere. Chaos of water. And so what God does is he divides the waters above from the waters below by inserting a, a horizontal plane that's best translated sky. And most of your Bibles can be translated heavens. That's not real, really good at translation. It just means sky, like where the birds fly. So God divides the waters below from the waters above with the sky. Okay, so that's the second day. Third day, God focuses on those waters below. And again, he's going to order. He's going to bring form. He pulls them back and sets boundaries and causes the land to appear. So he's dividing, he's now creating new realms. You've got the water above realm, the sky realm, the land realm, and the ocean realm. Each time he creates one of these four realms, he names it, he defines it. So he creates this new realm and then he immediately begins to work this realm by bringing about plant life. So, so he begins to populate the land with plants, every kind of plant. Now that, that word kind isn't a scientific word. We don't know how broad it is. Did he create one plant and it evolved into all types of plant? Did he create every species of plant? You don't know from the Hebrew what's going on there. But he fills, he's beginning to, to work this land and fill it with plant life. So at the end of day three, God has fixed the first deficiency. Now there's clear form. There's all these different realms. There's day and night, waters above, sky, land, and sea. Now it's time to fill. 
It's time to fix the void problem. So on day number four, God fills the light and darkness realm. So he creates the the sun to fill and rule over the realm of daytime. And he creates the moon and the stars to fill and rule over the realm called nighttime. Okay, next thing he does is he's going to fill the, the sky and the sea realms. So the sky realm he fills with birds, every kind. Again, we don't know how broad that is. The sea, every kind of, of aquatic creature. So he's filled those realms. And then the final, day number six. This day stands out from all the other days. It's interesting. At the end of each of the other days, in the Hebrew it says something like a second day. A third day. The sixth day is unique because it says the sixth day. In, in Hebrew, that's telling you the sixth day was the goal. Ultimately, everything was leading up. It was all about what happened on day number six. This is the remarkable day. It starts out much like the other days. God creates something to fill the final realm, the land realm. He creates animal life in every kind, whatever, however broad that is. And, and at the end of creating animals, God says, this is good. It's not very good. Very good is reserved for one thing. It's what God does next. He creates, and it's the word bara again. He creates something entirely new, and that's us. Humanity. We're, we're different than everything else. Why? Because we alone are made in the image of God. And, and we're going to spend a lot of time next week unpacking that phrase. You cannot overstate how important it is that humans are made in the image of God. So God creates this new kind of life, human beings, in his image. And God says, not only fill, but rule. Rule it all. Have dominion over it all. And so all of creation was leading up to this moment when God created his image bearers to rule his world. And now, with creation complete, both deficiencies are fixed. The world has formed. The world is filled. Now the creator can rest. And so the Sabbath rest begins. Okay, so that is how chapter one unpacks when you look at the, the flow of this creation account. But that now leads us to this, to this question that everyone wonders. Again, it's not the important question, but it is worthwhile. How do you reconcile all of that with modern science? Now we're getting to the, to the how and when. And particularly what people want to know is mechanically, how did God make this world? When did he make it? How do I fit that with what I learned in my modern science classes? And particularly, how do I fit all of this what I, with, with what I study in evolution? Okay, so we're going to talk about that. But first, for just a moment, we have to define that word evolution. Because I found that in a lot of Christian circles, evolution is thought of as a bad, evil thing. It's, all, it's horrible. We have to reject evolution. No, that, that's not true. Actually, everyone believes in evolution. Evolution simply means genetic change over successive generations. And we know that's happening. We can see it today. It's actually, I would argue, one of the greatest things God built into his creation is that life evolves. How brilliant. It's constantly adapting to pressures and getting better and better. It's amazing what God did through the creation of evolution. So everyone believes in evolution. The question is, how broadly has evolution been at work? You have three basic views for how broad evolution has been at work in the history of life. The first is evolution has done all the work. We would call this naturalistic evolution. It denies that there's a creator. All life can be explained simply through natural processes of evolution. We reject this view. 
Because this view rejects God, and, and that's not allowed. Okay, so evolution couldn't have done all the work. It can't be all that there is. Second view. Evolution has done most of the work that we see in life today. This is sometimes called theistic evolution. It views that God started everything off. God guided the process of evolution, occasionally intervening whenever he wanted to and especially created humanity. But evolution is to explain most of the the species and diversification of life that we see today. A lot of Christians hold this view. So theistic evolution. Third, Evolution has done little of the work. We might call this confined evolution. So this view says that, well, God created really all the diversity of life that you have today. Evolution has just been tweaking it. How much tweaking? Well, that's up for debate. Did God, for example, create one cat and it diversified through evolution into all 114 species of cats out there? Or did God create all 114 types of cats? There's there's debates about that. The key here, this is what's really important. Notice I only crossed out the top one. You you can be a Christian and hold the evolution. Actually, every Christian holds the evolution because at least at its base form, we know evolution is happening. The question among us is how broadly has it been happening? But even if you think it's been broadly at work, you can still be an evangelical Christian. And so both of those views are allowed. So we don't need to fear the word evolution. Okay? So with that clarification in mind, now let's talk about, well, how do you put together the details of Genesis chapter 1 and fit it with modern science? I'm going to give you the six major views. So I'm going to walk you through six major views. There are dozens and dozens and dozens more. I've tried to to kind of categorize them into the six big ones. So again, you don't have to take furious notes. All this will be up there. Let me walk you through this. But before I do, let me just be really clear. This is really important. I believe... God-fearing, faithful evangelical Christians can hold to any one of these six views. They're all represented by godly evangelical scholars. So you're good if you hold to any of these, right? So, view number one on Genesis 1, one many of us are familiar with, young earth creationism. So, young earth creationism says that Genesis 1 is describing six consecutive 24-hour days. So, add it up. Creation happened in 144 hours. God created everything by instant supernatural miracles, not by natural processes over long periods of time. Any part of creation that looks old was simply made to look old. Okay, God, God created it with the appearance of age. Creation is, in fact, quite recent, just a few days older than the oldest human being. And if the genealogies of Genesis are comprehensive, then that means creation was about 8,000 years ago. So, young earth creationism obviously holds a very, very narrow scope of evolution because there just hasn't been much time for diversification to happen through genetic differentiation. So, this view has a, a number of advantages. It does seem like the simplest reading of the text as you read Genesis chapter 1. It's the easiest to explain to other people. Um, When you combine that word day with the phrase evening and morning in the Hebrew Bible, it it always does refer to a 24-hour period of time. It is the most common interpretation throughout Christian history, church history of the last couple thousand years. So some strong advantages. There are also some significant disadvantages to the young earth creationism view. Um, If you kept reading, you would read in Genesis chapter 2 a different explanation of what's going on in creation. And so one of those has to be non-literal for them to line up. Okay, There has to be something going on 
in Genesis 1. It's not meant to be taken literally. Uh, Another problem, days 1 and 4, how do you have the light of day 1 without the natural sources of light in day 4? How do you have light without sun, moon, stars? Particularly sun and stars, that's where light comes from. So it's hard to imagine what those words mean. Furthermore, every time that the text uses day and evening and morning, what do those mean when there's no sun yet? Because it is the sun that defines what is evening, morning, and day. So Hard to wrap your mind around that. Um, another problem, th- this view is, 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 is very, very difficult to line up with modern science and not just biology or evolutionary science, but just basic physics. If you go out and you look up at night, you're going to see stars. They're billions of light years away, which, which means that it took billions of years for the light to travel from that light-emitting body to your eye. So how could the universe only be 8,000 years old and that light still re- it means that either God bent the laws of physics and made light travel faster at the beginning or he created not just the star but all the light from the star to your eye on that first day. So hard to put that one together. Um, young earth creationists will say, well, God created the universe with the appearance of age, just like Adam and Eve were not created as babies. They were created as mature adults. That's, that's a good answer. It does raise the, the fourth and final problem. In young earth creationism, the universe is not what it appears. Because it looks old, just using basic observational tools that, that God's given us. It, it looks old. If it's not actually old, then how much can we trust about what the universe is saying about itself and about God if we can't trust what it says about its age? So, those are some thoughts. Young Earth creationism, big idea. Young Earth creationism has its pros and it has its cons. Like every other view, none of them are perfect. Okay, so that's the first one. Second one, the day-age view. This is built on the reality that the word day you're reading in your Hebrew Bible sometimes is translated age, as in a long period of time. Um, You can actually see that. If you look at chapter 2 real quick, look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In in chapter 2, verse 4, Moses begins telling the story of creation a second time. So he just takes us back through in a different way. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. It's the same word. So in Genesis 1, you have six days. In Genesis 2, you have one day. You're seeing that clearly that, that word doesn't always mean 24-hour periods. So often in scripture, a a day is a long period of time. In this view, the day-age view, it basically says that Genesis 1 is the right sequence of events, but each day occurred over a very long period of time. Could have been thousands, millions, billions of years in each of those days. So this view, it's sometimes called progressive creationism. It's the idea that a long period of time passed and God progressively over billions of years did these creative acts that you're reading about. Um, in this view, the language of Genesis 1, this is kind of tricky to, to understand. It's, it's not meant to be scientific. It's meant to be experiential. So every time Genesis 1 describes something, you're to picture yourself standing on the surface of the land and observing what God is doing. So creating the sun and moon, no, they, they had to be around long before that. You can't have the earth without the sun. That's how planetary physics works. It's simply that this atmosphere was so chalked up with debris that if you were standing on the land, you could not have seen it. And so on day four is when God clears the atmosphere so that you can see the heavenly bodies. There are some advantages to this view. Day can indeed refer to a long period of time in scripture. You can better fit this view with modern science. There are some disadvantages, though. If you have in Hebrew the word day followed by the phrase evening and morning, 
Everywhere else in the Bible, that means 24 hours. So this would be very unique. Um, and there's still scientific problems with this view, trying to fit it into how science says the world came to be. So that's the second view. Third view, days of proclamation or revelation. In this view, the six days are literal, sequential, 24-hour days. However, God isn't actually creating on these days. He's simply talking about his creation on these days. He's either proclaiming what he's about to do if this week occurred before creation, or he's revealing what he's already done if it happened after. So if it's proclamation, then it means this chapter is about God talking to the angels for one week about what he was about to do when he created. If it's days of revelation, it's about God talking to Moses for one week about what he did when he created in the past. I like to explain this view. It's kind of like, oh, I pushed some buttons, didn't he? Sorry about that. You've seen all the answers. Uh, (laughs) In this view, it's easiest to picture. It's like the football coach when he's drawing out a play on the dry erase board, all those O's and X's. You know, when he's drawing it out, the play's not actually happening, right? He's just telling you either what you're going to do or what you did. And, and in that view, that's Genesis 1. It's just God telling you what he's going to do or what he already did. So this view certainly has some strengths. It's really easy to fit in with modern science because it says really nothing about the science of it. You get to stick with the day being literal 24 hours. It does have some disadvantages, though. It sure seems in Genesis 1 that as soon as God says it, it is. It doesn't seem like there's any gap there. So a little, little hard to put that together. Fourth view, gap theory. So the gap theory hypothesizes that there is a gap of unspecified time between verses 1 and 2. So in this view, there's billions of years that pass between verse 1, when God creates the universe, and verse 2, when God starts what he's doing here. And during that long period of time, an original creation was ruined by sin. Probably by the fall of Satan. In this view, the big idea is this view takes the words formless and void to actually be words of evil. So, and they do, those words, formless and void, sometimes in the Hebrew Bible, they mean like, like evil, broken by sin, horrible. And so in this view, there was an original beautiful creation that was broken by the fall of Satan. And so Genesis 1 from verse 2 on is about God restoring or fixing what Satan broke. There's some great things about this particular view. Um, It is really easy to fit with modern science because it just says modern science is all about the original creation and how it came about. And that's not what Genesis 1 is about. So it fits together really easy. Dinosaurs, fossils, all that part of original creation. The disadvantage is it's not obvious. There's nothing in Hebrew that suggests a long gap between verses 1 and 2. And so ultimately it's an argument from silence. It's just conjecture. That's a fourth view. Fifth view. This one's fascinating. I I, I love this view. Um, This one is based on something that you just don't catch in English. When I read you Genesis 1, I kept using the word earth. When you hear the word earth, what comes to your mind? Globe. It's blue marble floating through space. Not for the Hebrews. That word is the Hebrew word aretz. And to them, they would have translated it land. So everywhere in, in, in your Genesis 1 passage where you're reading earth, just translate it land. And what to the Hebrews was the land? The land under my feet. The land I can see. And so in this view, preparation of the land, the basic idea is that Genesis 1 is not about God creating, filling, forming the globe. Because the Hebrews knew nothing about the globe. It's about God filling, forming, and preparing a particular piece of land. What piece of land? The promised land. Which which is ultimately what 
Everything's about in the Old Testament. A particular bit of land defined by four rivers. That's where Eden was. That's the land that was given to Abraham. That's where Israel was planted. That is God's land. Meant for God's people. And so in this view, Genesis 1 isn't about what's going on everywhere else on the planet. It's only about what was going on on that land. In this view, the idea is life came about and the universe came about through all the natural processes. Science talks about God brought it about through all those natural processes. And then at some point in time, roughly eight to 10,000 years ago, there was a portion of land that God cared deeply about that was um, not yet prepared. For some reason, it was dark. It was covered in water. It was uninhabitable. And so Genesis 1 is about God taking that land and preparing it for human occupancy. So very fascinating view. The advantage of this is that is the correct translation of that word. If you ask an ancient Israelite what earth is, it's this land right here where we are. So it does justice to that idea. Um, I, I love how this view connects with this important theme. Throughout the Pentateuch, it's all about God's land, his promised land. So it connects very easily with that. And then it's very easy to reconcile with science because science is about what happened all over the globe, not about that particular piece of land. What are the disadvantages? Well, I can't prove it. I can't absolutely prove it. I think, I think there's a good case that can be made. Um, second issue, there are some passages in Exodus about God creating the heavens and earth in six days, but the grammar's different there, so it's hard to know whether that applies. So that's view number five. View number six, this one is very different, so you'll have to go with me for a moment. This one is called the literary framework view, and it's built on the correct observation that Genesis 1 is poetry. If Genesis 1 is a poem, then it does reveal theological truth, but not precise scientific data or sequence of events. That's not what poetry is meant to do. So in, in this view, the literary framework view, you can think of it this way. The days, every time it mentions days, days is simply a literary device used to craft a poem about God's power in creation. And, and this view, it's based really on the fact that so many of the Egyptian creation myths use this same vocabulary, same metaphor, same description of days. Basically, this view is just saying, well, Moses took their songs, their poems, and he reshaped them and used them to reveal the one true God who actually made the world. So this view has some strong advantages. It does justice better than any of the other views of the fact that Genesis 1 is poetry. So it's trying to do justice to that. Um, It explains the unusual repetition. You may have noticed in the chart, days one through three balance perfectly with days four through six. So this view would say, yeah, because the song was written that way to have parallelism. Okay, so it fits together nicely like that. It's obviously very easy to align with modern science because it says very little about modern science in Genesis 1. There are some disadvantages. It's complex to explain and wrap your mind around. And it does strip any scientific content out of Genesis 1. Okay, so uh, which of these views do I think is right? Um, Obviously, I I, kind of dig the last two. They're pretty cool to me. But I don't know. I, I really don't know. I assume I won't know until God tells me. And you know what? I'm okay with that. Because Genesis 1 is not about how or when the world was made. It's not the point. That wasn't what the original audience needed to know. That wasn't the questions that they were asking. Genesis 1 is not about how or when the world was made. It's about the far more important questions, who made it and why? 
Who made it and why count infinitely more in your daily life? Your actual practical experience of life depends far more on who made this universe and why he made it than how or when he made it. I once heard Greg Mott say this. Genesis was not written to a convention of scientists. It was written to a people on a journey of faith. So it's about the questions you ask when you're on a journey of faith. Not about the mechanics of creation, but about who made the universe and why did he make it? That's what Genesis 1 is ultimately about. Those are the far more important questions. So let's talk about those questions. Genesis 1, as Moses is writing Genesis 1, the first question he wants to ask is who made this land you're living on? Who made this world that you inhabit? And his answer is the one true God who is radically different than every other God you've ever heard of. When you look at the the God of creation in Genesis 1, he is so utterly different than the creative gods of Egypt. He's not limited. He's not immoral. He's not petty. He's not selfish. He's powerful. He's wise. He's unchallenged. So you see a totally different perspective of who God is in Genesis 1 than you did in any other ancient creation myths. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. The message of these two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, is this. You have seen the sea, the sky, the sun and moon and stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You've marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings. Fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who's behind it all. That's the point. Moses wants you to meet the one who's behind it all. He wants you to come to know this utterly unique God. So, first question, who made it? Second question, why he made it? Again, this is so much more important than the how and when. Why? The answer's for you. And and it's a crazy answer. It's a radical answer. He made all of this. He did all of this for us. I I want you to think back to what we read in Genesis 1. Did you notice that one day really did stand above the rest? One, One day was really unique. All the others. A third day. A fourth day. The last day. The sixth day. The end of every other day, it's good, but only once you come along is it very good. Humanity alone is made in the image of God. Nothing else has that. So you look at what's going on in creation and what you see is that humanity is unlike everything else. We are the pinnacle. We are the climax of all of God's creative work. We are what it was all leading up to. When you think about what God is doing in creation, why is he bringing form what he made why is he filling what he made for you so you can live there the the reason that the earth or land is problematic when it's formless is that you could not exist there you would drown you would die and so god brings form not just because he likes form but because he likes you he wants you to have a place where you can thrive and he fills it with plant and animal life why not just because it's fun but so you will have a world filled with life So when you look at Genesis 1, I think it's so important to understand the whole chapter is about how much God loves you. That's the point of Genesis 1. It's not a science book. It's a poem about love, about God's infinite love for his human creatures. So when you go out in the world and you see all of these beautiful sights, what you're meant to recognize is that this was made for you. Like when God made those things, all of those things, he made them for you. Not for the angels, 
not for the animals, not for the plants, for you, for your eyes, for your body to experience and enjoy. Creation is a gift of love. That's what Genesis 1 is about. And so as you walk away from this chapter and think about what this chapter teaches you, I I love Galileo's words. This is the point. The Bible's not intended to show us how the heavens go, but how to go to heaven. How to have a relationship with this amazing God who created this incredible gift out of love for you. And so as you read Genesis 1, and now, now we're, we're drawing it together, we're wrapping it up, and we're thinking, what do I do with this? Well, the first thing that you got to ask yourself when you encounter Genesis 1 is, do you know this God? Do, do you know this God who out of love created the whole universe for you? Do you know him yet? Do you know what we sang about this morning, that, that this God who in power and sovereignty and infinite wisdom created this amazing universe for you, that when you blew it, and I blew it, he took on flesh, became one of us, and died for us. I mean, that's the amazing thing. When you think about what God does, creation is half the story. The other half is that when we break it, he fixes it. And so have you come to trust in this creator, redeemer God? Who after making this beautiful world took on human flesh and died in your place and rose from the dead so that you could enjoy the world forever with him. If you haven't, the good news is he doesn't make you work for it. You you just have to trust. Just like the Israelites in the desert. You just have to trust. You just have to say, "I, I believe. You are my savior. You are my creator. Just trust that God made this world for you and Jesus died and rose for you so you could enjoy it with him forever. For those of us who have trusted in this God of Genesis 1, what's the challenge for us? Well, I think first of all, be really careful when you get caught up in debates about creation and evolution and science. It's fun to debate. It's fun to research. It's fun to discuss. But remember, it's always second. It's always secondary. Don't let those things divide us. I hope once and for all we'll bury the hatchets and realize that young earth creationists and theistic evolutionists and literary framework guys we're all on the same team so all those things that divide us are insignificant compared to what unites us and so my encouragement for you is sure you can have fun studying this stuff but remember what's most important you know a god who created a universe out of love think about how many people in this town don't know that and so i don't think there's a lot of people in this town worshiping the gods of egypt that'd be kind of crazy but i think there are a whole lot of people in this town who don't have a better answer to why Anything about who and why, there's a whole lot of people in this town, this academic college town, who don't think there's a God at all. They hold a naturalistic evolution. When you think about naturalistic evolution, the evolution word isn't the problem with that view. What's the problem? Naturalistic. It's that there is no explanation beyond what I see, beyond this nat. So there's no God. There's, there's no love. There's only long periods of time and a lot of good chance. Imagine what you can do in that person's life. When you share with them that there is actually a deity who exists and who loves you so much that he created this whole thing for you. We, we have the greatest answer to the question why that has ever been offered. We have the greatest hope for people that has ever been provided. We get to tell them that everything in this universe that goes so far beyond what our minds can even wrap around is for us and it was made out of love and that's an incredible answer to the question why so that's what genesis 1 is about 
Next week, we'll start with Genesis 2. And we'll go the rest of the way over the next few weeks. We'll see how this amazing creator God worked it out so that we get to share his world with him forever. If you'll close with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who not only creates but redeems. We praise you that you're a God who didn't give up on us when we sinned. Instead, you sent your son to die for our sins and rise from the dead so we could have eternal life. And we pray for anyone in this room or anyone who hears this message who doesn't yet know that glorious truth. We pray that they would come to trust in Jesus, not only as their maker, but as their savior. But Lord, so often in in a church context, we do focus so much on the gift of salvation, on what happened on the cross and in the empty grave, that we lose sight on what happened in Genesis 1. That this whole universe with its uncountable galaxies and, and unfathomable stars and amazing beauty and complexity, that, that it's all a gift of love for us. We lose sight of that first incredible gift that an almighty sovereign God who needed nothing would choose to create everything for limited creatures like us. Thank you that you made this world for us out of love. Thank you that before sin entered the picture, it was very good. Thank you that we look forward to a day when it is all very good again and we get to enjoy it forever with you. We thank you that you are a God of such love, of such grace. Help us to be faithful to tell that good news to a world that is dying. We pray all this in the name and for the glory of your son, Jesus. Amen. God bless you guys. I'll see you next week. Bring something to write with.